Welcome to another episode of The Whistle Stop. I'm Drew Ammon. Our guest is a former NBA head coach. Bob Hill led the New York Knicks in the 1986-87 season, the Indiana Pacers from 1990 to 93, and the San Antonio Spurs from 94 to 96. And in the 94-95 season, the Spurs won an NBA best 62 games, reaching the Western Conference Finals. Hill also was the head coach of the Seattle Supersonics from 2005 to 2007. Greg Peterson, Stephen Jordan, and former UK guard Josh Carrier joining us on the Whistle Stop podcast, which is sponsored by Jason Stonebreaker at Campbell Chevrolet on Scottsville Road in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Visit Jason to check out new and used vehicles, new Chevrolet Tahoes, Suburbans, Traverses, and the like. Call or text Jason at 270-996-8365 to schedule your summer test drive. Also check out CampbellChevrolet.com. Now to our conversation with Bob Hill, who played basketball and baseball at Bowling Green. He also has extensive experience coaching internationally and in the college game. Well, today we're joined on the Whistle Stop podcast by former NBA head coach, Bob Hill. Coach Hill, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. It's, uh, I've been looking forward to this for a week. I love it. I expected you to say a month, but we'll, we'll go with a week. That's fine. Well, week's the truth. <laughs> well, I have to go back to my my childhood a little bit to, to get us going. And I got to tell a story. I was a 11-year-old kid, and my family just moved from the farm hills of Indiana to Bowling Green, Kentucky. And my family finds a church, and we go, and a gentleman walks up to me. I've got a Pacers tie on. A gentleman walks up to me and says, you a Pacers fan, huh? And I said, yes, sir. Uh, and he said, well, good friend of mine from college is the, is the coach there, Coach Bob Hill. And I'm like, are you serious? And then fast forward 25 years later, and we got you on the podcast. So it's good to it's good to have a little bit of uh, two degrees of separation there there with 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 Tom, your old your old college friend. Who was the guy that uh, told you that? It, that was Tom. That was Tom Babick. Oh, <laughs> okay. Absolutely. He's, he's like one of the, uh, the most unique human beings on the face of the earth. I mean, what, what a great, great guy. When I was in college, I played I played basketball and baseball, and so basketball season would end. And, I, you know, the last two weeks of basketball season, I would have two practices in the night because I'd have to go to baseball practice. And then as soon as basketball was over, we would take a spring trip. And... Uh, this one year, my parents and you know three or four of the parents from Columbus, Ohio, and a bunch of us were from Columbus, followed followed it around, uh, and we played. I guess we played Alabama and whatever, and but we were on our way home, whatever. We were, we were headed back to Columbus, and I had a couple teammates on my car, my parents and I, and we had a wreck, car wreck, about two o'clock in the morning, right outside of Bowling Green, Kentucky, and I totaled the car. Everybody was okay, but my parents had to go to the hospital for a couple, for a couple of days. And uh, we stayed at a guy's house named Dr. Hill, and he was a big Western Kentucky uh, basketball fan. He had all kinds of memorabilia on the walls. And, but that, that's the only co- connection I have to Bowling Green, Kentucky, was a car wreck. How's that? Wow. That, that definitely uh, takes it back a little bit, too. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah. 
So, Coach, obviously you're known for your basketball accolades and your coaching career, and, and you mentioned that you played baseball in college. I'm going to go ahead and throw this out there, too. You were a frat boy in college, too, I hear. Uh, but you're a pretty good baseball player, and you were dra- or you signed with the San Diego Padres, uh, but you ultimately decided to take a GA job at Bowling Green, your alma mater. So why did you choose coaching versus pursuing your baseball career? Because they cut me. <laughs> The Padres cut me. They, <laughs> at the time, the Padres had uh, um, two and a half minor league teams. That's it. They had a team in the California League, a team in the uh, uh, Northwest League, where I was originally assigned. Uh, and then they had half the roster in uh, in Hawaii, in the Pacific Coast Conference. Uh, conference. Um, so I played in the Northwest League. I had a cup of coffee in the uh, California League. But they were financially embarrassed, so they released about, I don't know, I'm going to be wrong, but close. I don't know, they released about 60, 65 players throughout the whole organization, and I was one of them. So they, they, they sent me home. But I, you know, I hit 325. Uh, I did pretty well, and, and we won the league. We ended up winning the league, so it was a, it was a positive experience, except I got cut. And uh, I got home, and the assistant coach, uh, at Bowling Green had been named the head coach. And uh, he called me up and said, I got a job for you, so get up here. And this was, this was really, I was lucky there because, I, you know, back then you had to get your master's degree to coach in college. Uh, so I needed to get into graduate school and then get my graduate degree. Um, but Bowling Green let me, they paid me a, a full-time assistance uh, salary. Uh, now I had to pay for my own classes, but I wasn't a GA. I was a I was a full time assistant coach, 21 years old, didn't know what I was doing, and uh, but that you know that that's how I got started. I was really really lucky. I got some baseball one week and got a job the next week, so I'll, I'll always be thankful for that. Coach, talk about the early days of, of working five star camp, of how it was back in the day, and. Just, just some of those old memories and all the people that were involved, and how it led to some of your early friendships and coaching. The Five Star BC Camp and Superstars Camp out in uh, Lemon College in San Diego. Those were the three major camps that all of us, uh, you know, assistant coaches across the country, we we went to all of them. And it was it was just automatic. We were all at every at all those camps, and uh, and that was. The foundation of our of our game in America, basically, because you know the NCAA allowed college coaches to work those camps, and they ran the stations, and you know they had great lectures, and you know, the best players in the country went to those camps, um, and so you know our players in in America were being taught the right things. I mean, they were being taught fundamentals, and the camps were hard. And uh, the All-Star Games were great. And, you know, every every college in America was in attendance for the All-Star Games, and and it was just great. And as time progressed, you know, the AAUs got a grip on the foundation of basketball, and they still have five-star camp, but the best players don't go to those camps anymore. They play AAU basketball, which I think, which I'm not a fan of. I don't have anything against it, but. Um, you know, I think it's it's helping to ruin our game. Um, 
along with some of these silly rules that the NCAA, I mean, this new rule, this transfer portal, um, I, I, I don't understand that at all. Uh, they're just giving kids an opportunity to run away from the situation that maybe they weren't prepared to, to handle, and uh, they think the grass is going to be greener on the other side of the fence, and it's not. So five-star campus, I mean, I don't know. I, I was one of those... I was one of those anal guys that would get up at 6 and, and be at, at the stations at 8 o'clock with my cup of coffee. I just wanted to learn as much as I could. So I, I went early, and I was there all day. And, uh, you know, you meet tons of coaches and make great contacts. And uh, it was something that we all looked forward to every summer. And it just doesn't exist anymore. So it's sad. And you know, our golf and was has died and, and moved on, obviously. And five stars still exist, but the camps aren't what they used to be. And I had the opportunity. I spoke at five star nine straight years, and, and uh, that was once I got to the NBA. Um, but I always looked forward to getting there. And DC camp down in Middlesbrough, Georgia, was the same. I never worked there, but you know we would all go from five star to Middlesbrough, and then we'd all go from Middlesbrough to San Diego. So those were good times, and it would be. Uh, that was the Wild West when, you know, we didn't have, I mean, you could go wherever you wanted to go, and you could go see a kid play as many times as you wanted. You could go to his home, and they just weren't any rules back then. So the, the guys that worked the hardest are the ones that got the players usually. So it was fun, um, and, and I'll never forget it. But uh, Al Perry was, you know, he, you know, he, when I was an assistant coach at the University of Pittsburgh, I went, we were recruiting a player by the name of Joey Frizz that went to John uh, Calipari's high school. And uh, I went out there one day to see uh, Joey, and I walked in the gym, and there was this little chubby guy at the other end of the court. And he was shooting around, and it wasn't true. So, but he came running down and introduced himself, and it was, it was Calipari. And so he gave me directions on how to get to the coach's office. And then every time I'd go out there, you know, he'd make sure he came over and shook my hand and, and so finally, I don't know, he was maybe a sophomore or junior, I really don't remember. But, you know, he wanted help trying to get uh, into five-star camp. So I called Garfinkel and, and uh, helped him get into five-star camp. And then he signed the contract, or he signed the scholarship papers uh, at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. And he went down there. He probably wasn't good enough to play there, but he, he, he went there and then he transferred to Clarion State. And in the process of that, uh, you know, he wanted to be a counselor. So, you know, I helped him get a counselor's job. And uh, it was the summer before his senior year at Clarion State. And we were sitting under a tree after the, after stations at Five Star Bar before lunch. And, you know, I said, what are you going to do when you get out of college? He said, I want to coach. You know, so I said, why, why would you go back to Clarion State if you want to coach? You know, why don't you just come to Kansas and be a volunteer now and get started? And, you know, he looked at me and said, could I do that? And I said, yeah, I think, I think so. I had to call Coach Owens, but I'm pretty sure he must have. So I said, we'll talk about it tomorrow. So I called Coach Owens, and he said, absolutely. So he called Clarence State and told him what he was going to do, and, and he drove to Lawrence, and that's kind of when that's how it all started for him. And, uh, you know, and then he wanted, he went, I guess he went from Kansas to University of Pittsburgh as an assistant, and then uh, and then and then whatever whatever happened after that. But 
Yeah, he was one of the contacts I made, but you made so many of them at, at Five Star and DC Camp, and it was just, uh, it, was, it was awesome, you know, and it's sad to me that it doesn't exist anymore. I know that Cal used to take your, your sons, Cameron and Chris, fishing at Potter's Lake a time or two. <laughs> you know, with corn on their bait. Yeah, we, <laughs> you know, we used to go down there. But, they, you know, they'd catch fish. You know, they caught fish. They weren't very big, but they caught them. And it was it was fun to go down there to Potter's Lake. That's exactly right. So after your time at Kansas, you went on to the NBA and worked with the Knicks uh, under Hubie Brown. Uh, for a few years. Then you took over for a fired Hubie Brown with a young Patrick Ewing. Talk to us about that experience uh, in the NBA. You know, coming uh, coming out of Georgetown, Patrick, you know, Coach Thompson really didn't let him shoot much. So we all knew Patrick as a shot blocker and a runner and a dunker. You know, I'll never forget this. We're at Hofstra College, and uh, I was in charge of the big guys. And, and uh, we get out on the court, and I grab him right away, and I said, let's, let's go to the side basket here. And I said, I just went to the outside pivot up and down the lane and take jump shots. And so, I mean, he made he didn't make them all, but he made almost all of them. And I was just blown away how well he could shoot the ball. So we kind of knew right away that this guy was going to be able to score a lot of points for us, which we certainly needed. And, um, and on top of that, Patrick was uh, – a phenomenal guy, an easy guy to work with, and uh, I just enjoyed every second of it. He became rookie of the year, and when Patrick, when when, uh, when Hubie got fired, now all the stuff that leads up to Hubie getting fired is book really stuff, and uh, Hubie really had a, a tendency at times to be kind of hard on players, and Patrick had tendonitis in his knees, and so he used that as an excuse not to practice once in a while, which you know Hubie didn't appreciate. But this, we, near the end, before they fired you, we, we, were, uh, we had to go to Boston to play. And Patrick's from Boston. And so, uh, and every time we went to Boston, we played good. You know, we would just play good. And, you know, the Celtics were very good, as you guys remember. And um, so we're up there, and it's halftime. And we're winning. We're winning the game. Patrick's, I'm going to be wrong, but Patrick's got 17 points and 12 rebounds and two blocks at halftime. He said, Pat, I said, you know, he'll be, leans over to me and shows me the score or the halftime uh, sheet and says, this guy's knee is not hurting him tonight. I said, well, you know, he plays, he always plays good here in, uh, in Boston. So second half starts. So my job with Hubie was, and, you know, you look at the NBA benches today, there's 12, 13, 14 guys sitting over there. Well, I was the only one sitting over there. I was all by myself, so I had to, I had a lot to to keep track of and, and, and to do to help him. And one of them was to keep track of the plays that were working the best. And then I would yell them out to him, you know, five up, five down, three out, whatever. And, uh, so in the first half, you know, Patrick, Patrick's plays all began with five. And so his, his plays were cooking. So the second half starts, and uh, I'd yell out five down, and he would call three out. I'd yell out five up, and he would call two down. I mean, he took the ball out of Patrick's hands in the second half so he could go to the press conference after the game and see, and say, see, we can't win with this guy playing center either because he was in this uh, ego trip fight with, with the guy. And, and I just, I, I couldn't make sense to him. I couldn't make sense to him. He would say, you know, you need to quit doing this because eventually 
I mean, Patrick was the, was the face of the future of the organization. And, uh, but, you know, the guy, Patrick, just he just rolled with it. I mean, he, he, he did a great job with it. He just, uh, he just kept playing. He was a great player for us. And, uh, and, you know, everybody else knows the rest. I mean, the guy was terrific. But I learned, I learned some things from Ruby. I mean, it was a good time being with him. And uh, certainly was sad that they, they had to let him go. But back then, you know, coaches got fired. Today they don't. I mean, you, know, you, can, you can win 20% of your games today and keep a job. But you know, back then, if you, if you didn't keep things headed in the right direction, well, they got rid of you pretty quick. So that was a bad part of it. You've been around the game for quite some time. Do you like the direction the game is going? Oh God, no, no. Not at what all. would What would you change? First of all, the NBA changed the defensive rules. You know, because when they started drafting these high school kids, uh, this one and done thing is not working. Uh, I've never been a fan of it. Uh, it's not helping basketball at any level. Um, there's a lot of bad teams in the NBA right now, largely due to the fact that. You know, guys are 20, 21 years old, and you're just not uh, physically mature enough, mentally mature enough, emotionally mature enough to play 82 games and play as often as you do and play 48 minutes and, and, and win on top of that. It takes these guys four or five years to become the kind of player that, that, that you can win with. And uh, on top of that, we already talked about this a little bit, but... but you know, they go to college for one year. And I got a great – here's a good one for you. When Earl Watson was named the coach of, uh, of the Phoenix Suns, he played for me in, in Seattle. He called me up and he said, you got to come out here. you got to help me. you got to really help me with the offense. So I went out to Phoenix. I was there for three months. And, and Devin Booker was on the team. And I loved Devin Booker. Devin Booker is a great kid, uh, loves basketball. I mean, he, I mean, he just it's fun to be around, and, and I'm thrilled for him and the Suns that they're doing well now. But I got to know him pretty well. And one day after after practice, he was walking down the hallway, and he had Kentucky uh, ice bags that he was going to put on his knees. And I said, "Why, why you got those Kentucky ice bags? I mean, you're not in college anymore." He said, "I know, but." I went to Kentucky, and I said, okay, let me ask you a question. How many hours to his uh, graduation did you get at Kentucky? He said, coach, I didn't go to Kentucky for hours. I went to Kentucky for minutes. <laughs> and then I said, I said, well, you didn't even start for Kentucky. He said, <laughs> he said I know, but I should have. But I didn't, and I said, everything's working out for me. But that. You know, those one-and-done kids don't go to class. I mean, they go to class the first semester, so they stay eligible. In the second semester, they don't. That whole year is a waste of time. You know, it works out for a lot of them, but when they started drafting these guys and letting them go to college for a year and giving them millions of dollars after one year of college, there's, there's very little correlation between college basketball and the NBA. So they really, they're not getting prepared to play in, in the NBA playing a year in college. So I'd eliminate that right away. You know, if you don't want to go to college, play in the D League, play in the G League. I mean, 
there's a new league that's being formed now, I guess, that, 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 they, that they can make some money in. The part about the one and done thing is we all know about the young guys that, that get into the NBA and get that second contract. I mean, the second contract's the one that sets you up for your life, not the first one. What we don't know, what the public doesn't know, is how many guys put their name in the draft because of pressure from their, their family or another source, didn't get drafted, and they're playing in some third year country now for 50 bucks a game with no college education. So that's not working. And uh, it's hurting college basketball and it's hurting the NBA. I'm, I've been against that from the beginning. And you know, the other thing, I'm shocked that the schools allowed it. To, to, you know, I'm shocked that with these one-and-done schools that the presidents and the board of directors are allowing it when you, it doesn't shed a good light on the academic community of this school. So there's too many things that I would change, and, and I'm not going to get the opportunity, but that's the way it's going. I mean, it's, it, I don't think it's going to slow up, and I think this new rule that the NCAA put in with these transfer portal is bad. Um, I do kind of agree with this COVID year because I think that, that these guys get another year. But, you know, it's the freshmen in high school are the ones that are getting screwed. They're not the freshmen, the seniors. The seniors in high school are the ones that are getting screwed in that bill because all these colleges are looking to sign transfers out of the portal. So that if you didn't get a scholarship offer earlier, you didn't sign as a senior in high school, a lot of these kids are getting left out to drive. So right now, you know, it's it's not good, honestly. So, Coach, I have to agree 100% on everything that you just said. Uh, and your good buddy Cal has done a really good job of taking advantage of that one-and-done rule. And he has put a lot of people, and he's changed a lot of families' lives in terms of money. But I guess my question, have you talked to Cal about that view? And uh, if so, has he said anything uh, to differ from your opinion? No, I, I haven't talked to him about it. John, John has always, uh, and there's nothing wrong with this. You know, so please let me preface my comments by saying there's nothing wrong with it. But he's always been a money guy. I mean, money's always been real important to him. Um, you know, when he, and I think this is smart. So you know, I understand the, where I'm coming from. But when he went to Clarion State, he bought two, uh, I think it was two, trailers from a lady who was just tired of him, and he rented him out to students, and, he, and he, he was making money, which was good. You know, I mean, took your head to him. But this whole one and done thing, I mean, I, I'm glad that all the families are making money and all that stuff, but what about the reputation? How many of those guys are helping teams win? And how many of those guys that didn't get into the league? Here's a good story for um I'm forgetting his name right now, but he he, he signed with Kentucky uh, before John took the job. And Daniel Orton. Remember Daniel Orton? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I was out in San Francisco training NBA pre-draft guys, and Daniel came out there uh, the summer before he went to Kentucky to train with us. And we, had, we had Blake Griffin, we had Blake's brother, we had Hilton Armstrong, he had a big bunch of guys. And the, the summer that he came, we just happened to have a lot of Euros that were coming over that we, we wanted to get in shape to play in the summer league. So, I mean, I don't know. We had 
I don't know, we had 45 people out there. But the competition was really good. And, and uh, the guy I worked with is a Navy SEAL Special Ops Forces trainer, and his stuff is sick. I mean, it, 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 I mean, if you can get through it, you're in great physical shape. So Daniel, to his credit, he got through it. And he was 6'10", 260, with about 7% body fat when he left to go to Kentucky. And uh, he didn't get to play. He ended up, he came back to Kentucky, uh, or he came back to San Francisco the next summer, and he weighed 300 pounds. Um, he got drafted 30th by Orlando. You know, didn't make it. And I don't know where he is now. I mean, he called me the other day. And I forgot to ask him where he was, but he's married. He has a little girl. He's playing somewhere, but he's a good example. Nobody knows where the hell he is now. And it, it's, there's too many guys like Daniel Orton that we don't know about that don't get, don't make it, don't make a lot of money. I mean, life, there's more to life than a lot of money. You know, what about an education? What about, I mean, we've lost sight of that. And that's the sad part, and that's largely why I'm against all this stuff because uh, it's just it's not helping young people it's not helping college basketball and it's not I mean if you take a look at this year's uh, final four none of those teams had one dunk game and that's why it was such a damn good tournament I mean it, it was competitive and uh, you have a team like Paul Roberts Max Azmus is from Dallas I trained him in the summertime and uh I mean, that's going to change his life for as many as he played in, in the NCAA tournament. But, you know, I think most people would agree that it was enjoyable to watch because you didn't have some highfalutin guy that's going to stay in college for one year playing. And, you know, our expectations for those kids are always so low because they're freshmen. And uh, it's just that it's just not working out. It's not working out. Uh, basketball well coach i want to go back to 1988 and i want to ask about your decision that you negotiated a private school for your young sons in Bologna, italy but you threw your firstborn into the forest without a flashlight to a public school where they didn't speak any english to learn italian on his own and you know he did that was amazing he didn't want to go to the private school. You know, he wanted to go to the public school. And, uh, and he went, and, you know, he, he soldiered through it. And then, I don't know, you know, you hear stories about guys waking up one morning and just being able to do this or do that. Well, that's what happened to him. He just spoke it, and it was crazy. And his brothers, you know, they went to a, a private school where they spoke English, not, not a lot of English, but certainly a lot more than they did in the public school. And uh, so he used to make fun of them because he could speak he could speak Italian. But I had I had Michael Ray Richardson. Uh, I took him I took Michael to Italy to be on my team, and he had just gotten kicked out of the NBA for drugs. I don't know if you remember that or not. He he got hooked up with some some bad guys over in Jersey, and um, you know he made a mistake, and and so I took him over there. He and my family. Uh, became he's like he's like my my son he's like my other son to this day I still talk to him but he he used to take Cameron when he could he would take Cameron to bars to try and pick up girls because he could 
he could do. <laughs> <laughs> and and he would uh and he bought Cameron this beautiful leather jacket for doing it. So Cameron thought he had a bride and went to heaven, but uh, yeah, no, Cameron was you know, and that, you know the great thing about now that leads you right into another great uh, topic, but in Europe and Asia, they have club sports. They don't have sports in their, in their schools. And so when they have club sports, uh, the team that I worked for was called Beertus, belonged to Beertus, and they had, they had a organized basketball teams for age groups starting at six, six to seven, seven to eight, all the way up. And they had their own coaches. They had their own uniforms. They had their own state championships. It was unbelievable, and they had practice three days a week. Cameron's team and my middle son Chris's team both made it to the state championship, and in the state championship, the foreigners couldn't play, so they didn't get to play in the state championship, but, but they got to the state championship, and, you know, they got good foundation uh, teaching from, from the coaches over there because you know, I would have to meet with the coaches once every two weeks and make sure they were you know, teaching the right things or seeing what they're teaching. In Casey, the little one, um, this team is really good too. But they didn't get the state championship, but it was unbelievable the teaching that was going on over there, and that, that's where Kobe Kobe got his start over there. Now, I don't know how many years Kobe played for me, but trust me, um, the foundation that young players are getting over there and in Asia today um, is better than we're getting with these AAU teams in America. Yeah, so, Coach, fast forward a little bit. You get back to the States, and you work with the Indiana Pacers, and you get to work with one of my all-time favorite players in Reggie Miller. Um, obviously, his commitment uh, to the game, he had, you know, that swagger. He, uh, you know, talked a little trash. Uh, talk about coaching a player like Reggie uh, and any funny stories or any inside stories in terms of, you know, that Michael Jordan fight or any other thing that set him apart. Well, he was easy to coach because he wanted to play. He wanted to get better, um, you know, and, and he worked hard in the summertime. When the season ended, we, we made the playoffs all the time, every year. So, we would, you know, he would take, I'd say we would take two weeks off, three weeks off, and then we'd be right back in the gym. And he'd be leading, he'd be leading the way. He just wanted to get better. And he tried to add, he tried to add something new to his game every summer. And I would be there with them, and we we came up with all these cone drills that that uh, we just set the cones up within our offense, basically. And we would run his routes hard, and we and he just would work so hard to get better in the summertime, which was always impressive. And Chuck Person was the same way. Detlef Shrimp was the same way. I mean, we had a really good group there. Uh, Rick Smith would go up to Walton, New York, in the summer, and I'd have to go up there to see him, but. After doing that for a couple of summers, I told him, I said, look, I'm not coming to Walton anymore. You need to come back to Indianapolis. And he did. And so we had, well, by the time September rolled around, we had the whole team there. But Reggie was, the, was leading it. And the best story, the best story I can tell you about Reggie was Reggie had, had or has great parents. He had a good mom and a good dad. Now, one of his parents has passed. I think it was his mom. But, you know, you know about his sister, and she was a great player. And he had a brother that played professional baseball, and then he had another sister that didn't play sports. Uh, but they were they were in Indianapolis a lot, and I got to know all of them. But when Reggie was growing up um, and he got in trouble, 
whether at school or whatever. Instead of sending him to his room, his dad sent him to the backyard to shoot free throws for three hours. So he had to go back there and he had to shoot him for three hours. And uh, that paid off for him because I think he was a career 90-plus free throw shooter. The more smack you talk during games, the better he played. You know, so I, I never discouraged him. I didn't want him to get distracted by fans. But, I, you know, if he felt like he needed to say something to him, I really didn't care. You know, just go ahead and do your thing. But uh, he played great for me, and uh, I'll always appreciate him. So we're going to stay on the topic about the Pacers. Talk about getting back to the Pacers, back to the playoffs, that game five in the Boston Garden. You know, in the old Boston Garden, they had church there on Sundays. They always had church. And the locker rooms uh, were for Sunday school. So all the kids would be in the locker rooms having Sunday school. So game five was on NBC, and it was at 2 o'clock. Game, uh, and so when we got to the garden, we couldn't get in the locker room because they were having Sunday school in there. And then... They wouldn't turn the they wouldn't turn the heat on, uh, and you know that I don't know. It was May, I guess it'd been May, yeah. So it'd be cold as hell in the locker room. So they did everything they could do to discourage you or distract you from from playing the game. And um, that Pacer team believed they could beat Boston, I mean they did. And Michael Williams was our point guard. And he had come from Detroit. Detroit had, had won a championship, and he was a part of it. And he kind of felt like he knew what to say, he knew what to do. And um, when we won, we won game two in Boston. Well, he told the team before the game, when we win tonight, don't be celebrating out on the court. Just walk off the court like no big deal, and then we'll celebrate and we'll get to the locker room. And that's exactly what happened. And then when we got back to uh, Indianapolis, we should have, could have won game three. Um, but game four, Slick Leonard just passed away. And uh, Slick was a friend of all the coaches. Uh, and he did he did the radio and he did some TV. And, and he used to say every time a player would, would hit a three, he'd yell, boom, baby. I mean, that was his mantra. That was his thing, you know. So they did a they did a big piece and they asked all the coaches you know to do a video for them. Anyway, I watched I watched that game. I, I watched Game Four in Indianapolis just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, this is funny because we weren't known as a great defensive team, but I guarantee you, I watched that game. We were a hell of a lot better defensive team than these teams are today, and uh, Boston got ahead of us by 13 points. And, and, and the Pacers just laced it up and went after him and got control of that game. And Chuck, Chuck Person was guarding the cat in the right block. And Bird tried to get him, get him the ball, and Chuck deflected the pass and dribbled it down the court and pulled up in the right slot, hit a three, put us up two points. And Marcus Carolina just went absolutely crazy, just crazy. And uh, I don't know how many points Chuck had. And then we went, you know, we went back in game five, and we should have won that game, but they couldn't guard Chuck in the post. So I was running this this simple post up for, uh, for Chuck. And Reggie Lewis was alive then. Reggie Lewis was a hell of a player. I mean to tell you, he, he could play. 
So we, I had Reggie Miller and they had Reggie Lewis, and I was going to turn Reggie, or Reggie Miller off of Chuck in the left block, and Reggie Lewis let I mean, did a great job. He didn't let him catch the ball, so Reggie Miller emptied out to the right corner, and Vern Fleming was in the game at the time. And Vern, I loved Vern, but he wasn't a great range shooter, so he had to try and get the ball to Chuck in the post, and Bird was guarding Vern, and Bird just backed off and challenged him to shoot it, and Vern was trying to get it into Chuck, and Chuck came out of the post, and Vern passed it off to him, and Chuck took a, not a particularly great shot, missed it, and we lost the game. But that team believed that they could win, and uh, and I was really proud of them. Um, we, we could have, should have won that game, and we didn't. But it's the first time in the history of that franchise uh, that a Pacer team won a game on the road in the playoffs. And uh, first time they ever took a team like Boston that far in the playoffs. So it was a wonderful experience and created a foundation for us to build on as we move forward. Well, Coach, you mentioned the late Bobby Slick Leonard, and I know Josh's dad has a lot of memories of playing against him when when the Colonels would play against the Pacers, but his radio partner, Mark Boyle, we just had him on in episode 55, and uh, he really credited you with his style that he carries on today and being professional and having shirts monogrammed and always having his suit tailored. And I thought that was very neat that he remembered you not only for your coaching, but also for your style and how professional you were. You know, I always, uh, I just had a, a very, very deep uh, sense of appreciation for having the opportunity to, to coach in the NBA. I mean, where I, where I grew up and where I came from, to, I, you know, I never thought ever that I would ever be a professional coach. But, you know, once I got there, you know, I just kind of felt like it was my, my responsibility, my obligation to present myself as as, as best I could for the franchise and for the city and for the fans. And uh, so that, that's kind of where that all came from. And then when you start making a little bit of money, then you can get tailored clothes, which once you once you buy some tailored clothes, you really don't go back to the rack because everything fits so well. So, that, you know, that, that part of being in the NBA was always fun for me. And it's nice that Mark, uh, you know, that Mark realized it. I'm glad I had a, a positive influence on him. Mark is a... Uh, Mark was always great. I mean, we always had a great relationship, and he did, he did my radio show. So, you know, we did a lot of work together and uh, had a great time doing it. So, And I talked to him. He's actually the one that sent me the, the uh, copy of the game the other day, so I had a chance to talk to him again. So he, he's, uh, he's a good man. He's been there a long time. He, he, was, he was gracious enough to come on, and, of course, me and Steve being Pacers fans and living in Indiana for a bit, we were both chomping at the bit with all his stories and our other host Drew was too. So it, it was really cool having, having, uh, having Mark on, but, uh, you spent some time in Orlando and got to coach Shaq and Penny and mm-hmm. then, uh, off to San Antonio and you had a guy named Dennis Rodman, the worm play for you. Talk about coaching Dennis and how, uh, you favored the Phil Jackson uh, side, where you kind of let him do his thing a little bit, but still had to had to rein him in a little bit. And hopefully, you've got a, a, a dentist story or two for us. This all took place before before any of us got to San Antonio. It was a year before because 
you know, Dennis had a no-trade clause in his contract in Detroit, and they had just won two championships. And, and uh, you know, he was married and had a little girl named Alexis. And uh, he caught one of his teammates, uh, his wife, he caught him in bed, and uh, that's when he shaved Alexis's name in his, head, in his hair and started carrying a shotgun in his pickup truck. And, you know, things things went south for him. And, and um, the president, general manager, and the, and the coach of San Antonio flew to Detroit and took him to dinner and told him that if he would, if he would get out of that contract, uh, they'd give him a $7 million balloon payment the following April if he came to San Antonio. So, you know, I said, okay, I mean, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get out of this and I'll, I'll come to San Antonio. So that, that's the year that he ended up uh, having that affair with Madonna and all that stuff in the playoffs in Utah and so on and so forth. And uh, they, you know, so they fire everybody. And, and then Popovich goes in and, and brings me in. And so we're there. And, you know, I, when I was in Indiana, I watched film. I watched so much film trying to figure out how to keep him off the boards. I was I was excited about having him on my team. I, I really was. I mean, I knew he was different and all that. But when, uh, when the season began, we had, you know, we had to have physicals. We had to have a team meeting. We had to have a bus to get to training camp. And we had to have uh, our first practice. We, we missed all that. He <laughs> didn't come to anything. And uh, he shows up. Noon on the first day, missed the first practice. He shows up at the hotel, and uh, I get him and bring him to my uh, my suite, and we talk for a while. And uh, I kind of wanted to know what his attitude was about the team. You know, I went right down the roster, and I just listened to him. I said, "All right, well, what about what about Avery Johnson? What about David Robinson?" So he killed every player on the team. He said, this team, they're soft. They'll never win big games. David Robinson's overpaid. They'll never make a big shot. You can forget about that. And so I just said, listen, I didn't I didn't tip my hat one way or the other. So go, go through training camp. Now, back then, you know, you had, you had 10 days of training camp, two a day. Then you played eight or nine exhibition games. So your, your training camp, in essence, went for almost a month. Today it goes like three days. It's just players today are trying to play themselves into shape. As well. It's one of the reasons we're having so many injuries. So anyway, we're in Mexico City. We're going to play Houston in our last exhibition game. His agent calls and says, I'm coming to Mexico City. We need to meet. So he flies down there. We meet, I don't know, for three hours in a suite, the day of the game. And he, he and Dennis explained to us that day the deal that he came to San Antonio on. Now, they couldn't say anything because it was a big, big fine at the time because you can't tamper. Um, and I knew his agent, you know, and I, so when they left, I, I kind of believed them. I mean, I, I looked at Popovich, I said, you know, I, I believe him. And I can't say what he said, but, you know, he said there's no way I'm paying that guy no $7 million. So that kind of set the, you know, that kind of set the, you know, the, uh, the table for me because, you know, if he wasn't going to get a seven million, how was he going to act? So I had to manage that the entire year. 
which, you know, was okay, but I had to spend a lot of time, uh, more time on Dennis than I wanted to. So we are in the Western Conference Finals. Now, remember, you told me back in training camp that David would never make a big shot. So we're in the Western Conference Finals. This is a minute to play. We're in Houston. We're down one point. David's on the line for two free throws. Now, Dennis has set the scene here a little bit. They're at the other end of the court. I'm standing close to half court. Dennis is on the left slot facing the basket. David's on the foul line. David shoots the free throw, misses it. Dennis Rodman pivots towards me and puts his hands out like I told you. I mean, that was six months ago when he told me that. David missed it, and he missed the next one, and he ended up losing the game. Dennis took a shower, flew to Vegas, and then killed the Spurs and forced us to trade He was not a bad guy. I mean, it was a point in the season. Because I'd watch him after practice when he'd shoot his free throws. He could shoot. He could shoot his free throws. You know, it was a, he would take his shirt off, he'd go to a side basket, and he'd shoot his free throws, and he would make them. And so I got to thinking, I'm going to try I don't have a meeting with him. I'm going to ask him because he thought he was an entertainer. I mean, he was a basketball player, but he, in his mind, he was an entertainer. And uh, I said, look, I, I need you to do two things for me. I need you to lead the break and you get a defensive rebound because you've got so many rebounds. Because I think you'll, you'll really increase our, our fast break percentage. And I want you to try to make your free throws in the games because I, I see you making a practice. So he sat there for about a minute, and he said, okay, I can do that. Our fast break percentage went up about 15% because they all knew he wouldn't shoot, and they ran like hell. So we, we, we scored more points when he led the break. And he tried to make his free throws. He made more than he was making them, but he was not a bad guy. I mean, I, I really enjoyed him. I had a decent relationship with him. I mean, I had to do – I mean, we had two knockdown drag out manager, umpire, fights, spit flying, and, and we had to suspend him. Uh, we had to suspend him at one point. Uh, he went back to Detroit and met with his psychologist every day for two weeks. And uh, when he came back to San Antonio, his agent called me and said, you better get over to the practice and see if Dennis is going to retire. And I said, okay. So I I went over to the practice facility, grabbed him, and went up to this room on the second floor and we talked for 45 minutes, and I said, look, it's basically what I said, look, you try to break the you know, halfway through this season. Are you to quit now? I mean, I, I, and it's up to you. You want to quit? You know, go ahead and quit. But if I were you, I'd practice today. I'd get out there on the court. I'd break a great sweat. And then make a decision after this and see how you feel. And he said, well, I don't have any equipment. I said, well, we got equipment, so we'll get you some equipment. So we had practice, and uh, he's over there shooting his free throws, and I walked by and I said, well, how do you feel? He said, I'm fine. I'm good. Everything's good. So we finished, we finished the season until 
you know, you're not allowed to ride motorcycles uh, or ski or any of that stuff during the season. But he was out riding a motorcycle on a Sunday afternoon and he hit some gravel and uh, slid on his motorcycle and separated his shoulder. So now he's out. I don't know. He only played about 45 of the games that year. And he won 62. I had J.R. Reed and Terry Cummings that could take his place. We lost them for, I don't know how many games at that point. Um, but we we went on a, a six, a five or six game trip east as soon as Dennis uh, was in the hospital. And uh, we're in Detroit. And uh, it's, I don't know, it's five o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> I'm obviously asleep in my room and there's a knock at my door. Usually when you get a knock at your door, it's not good news. If somebody's family, something's happened, whatever. And so I go hustling to the door, and uh, it's a David Robinson standing there. He's got this uh, Nike suit on, and, and David was a very religious man, as you probably know, and he had his beautiful Bible under his uh, left arm. And he's, you know, I, I look like a fool, so when, once he started stopped laughing, he said, I just need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. So I said, okay, come on in. So I got back in bed. He sat at the foot of the bed. He told me that they had a revelation that night that God told him that he was supposed to take over the league. And he had some questions about the offense. David was really using the coach. He really was telling him what to do, and he would do it. And he, you know, he was, but he, he never asked me any questions. You know, so the questions that he asked me for that, you know, this was like game, I don't know, game 62. This was two-thirds of the way through the season. You know, these are these are questions that he should have known the answer to. But I answered them, and uh, he said, okay, thanks, coach. And we won every game, and he was named MVP of the league. So Dennis, you know, doing what he did, opened the door for David to secure his MVP and uh Dennis came back and played in the playoffs, obviously, so he could remind me in game six at the Houston that David wouldn't make a big shot. So it was, it was uh, you know, and the two of them got along okay. They didn't have a lot in common. Uh, but David and Dennis got along okay, and, and uh, but coaching them was, was interesting. It was a book reading, no doubt. You're listening to the Whistle Stop Podcast, sponsored by Jason Stonebreaker at Campbell Chevrolet on Scottsville Road in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Here's part two of our conversation with former NBA head coach, Bob Hill. Coach Hill, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and they talk about new NBA teams and the two cities that they always mention, one is Louisville and the second one is Seattle. Talk about your time uh, with the Sonics and the relationship that you had with your staff and former players, and if you think there'll be a new NBA team in Seattle again. There should be. I mean, there should. There should. The NBA needs Seattle. I think. I mean, they have they have great fan base. Uh, their, their fans were great. I mean, our team wasn't very good, but they sold out. They had a they had a fan club. Uh, that was to die for that I used to go and speak to. And, I mean, we would 
have great. I mean, it was it's it's a fantastic city for an NBA team, and it was always a cornerstone. You know, it was always the, the, the Sonics were always good. And they always had a good team, and they were fun to watch. They're, they're kind of like Phoenix was, you know, and Phoenix has had a dry spell until now. But Seattle, uh, yeah, it, it's a phenomenal city, uh, and the NBA would benefit largely to have a team back there again. Uh, but I had the I had the opportunity to coach Ray Allen in, in Seattle, and uh, you know, people ask me who the greatest player was, you know, that I coached. And I can't say Ray was the greatest player that I ever coached, but he was one of them for sure. And uh, easy to coach. And, you know, he Ray Allen was the finest bad shot maker I've ever seen. You know, you had to get used to that with him when you coach him because he, he'll take a bad shot. But, you know, he might make it. You know, where, Reggie wasn't bad at it either, but, but Ray, Ray just believed in his ability to shoot a basketball. We, we, were in, uh, we were in Washington, and we just got our butts kicked one night. He went, I don't know, he went three for 19. He just couldn't make a shot. You know, and uh, the next day, we're having a make-miss session, a dummy session, 510. And uh, and I walked over to him. I said, you know, when I had Reggie in Indiana, if he had a bad shooting night, he would just tell the team he's going to shoot it in the rhythm of the play. And Ray Allen, this is a true story now, Ray Allen looked at me and said, I didn't shoot a bad last night. And I said, well, three for 19 is not very good. He said, I know. I didn't shoot it bad. It just didn't go in. He said, they felt good. But that's the mindset that those guys have. You know, how many times have we heard Tiger say, well, I put it in good, it just didn't go in today. You know, and that's another level of, of expertise of, of knowing how it feels when you shoot it, and it should go in. And, and uh, that next night in New York, he, he shot it again and shot it well. But he was special. I, you know, and, I, and our team wasn't very good, and I I brought him into my office before a game, and I, and I said, Ray, you know, why, don't, why don't you take a game or two off? You know, we're not going to make the playoffs. He said, that's not my job to take days off. He said, you know, I, I forget what his injury was. He had, he had an injury that he could take care of in the season. And, and he told me then, he said, I'll take care of it in the season. Um, but I'm playing. I mean, that's my job. My fans, the fans expect me to play. And, you know, he, I mean, that doesn't happen today. Guys, I mean, there are guys in our league now that just take games off because they don't want to play. And, uh, you know, Ray Allen was a, he was a throwback guy. He was a true professional. He was classy. I mean, he, home or on the road, either one, he would be in the arena three and a half hours before the game shooting. He, he, he had a routine for all the shots he wanted to take. He would go in, take a shower, or no, he'd go in and get a massage, take a shower, get dressed, do the media, play the game, and do the same thing over again the next day. I mean, he was like a machine. Um, he was very impressive, bright, articulate, professional, the whole the whole ten yards. So and I had uh, Richard Lewis up there too. He was an awfully good basketball player, and uh, enjoyed my relationship and my time with him too. So, but yes, Seattle made the team. 
the NBA would benefit again uh, if they have a team there. Hey, Coach, while you, you were out there, you got to do some work with the U.S. Basketball Academy, and I know your son Cameron worked that, and Coach Chris Briggs uh, worked your training camp and was out at U.S. Basketball Academy. We had Coach Briggs on in episode 13. And just talk a little bit about that experience and how you that's really developed your overseas and your foreign tour that you've taken with uh, coaching stops in China, Japan, Ukraine, Taiwan, and, and how the U.S. Basketball Academy really uh, encompassed that. Now, Bruce O'Neill, Bruce just passed away, uh, but he was the CEO and uh, he was the guy that took that whole thing together. And, uh, you know, he, he, he called me up one day and, and he asked if I would come up and she could bring 18 teams to the academy and then train them. And, and there was a coach um, from uh, Guangdong coming over who was going to bring his team over, and he wanted an American coach, an NBA American coach, to work with his team for two weeks, twice a day, all defense. And they said, you need to come up and do this. So I, I went up there. And uh, the coach's name was Lee Twin John. And he was from, he had just gotten into coaching. He was a player in China. He was a good player. He came to every practice. I mean, he was at every practice. And if the players weren't playing hard and doing what they were supposed to do, I mean, he would interrupt me and get in and get in their butt. And uh, we had two, it was phenomenal. We had two weeks. And I cannot tell you how this happened, but I don't speak Chinese and he didn't speak English, and neither one of us had any interest in speaking the other language. But we we communicated. I, I don't know how. And then we got an interpreter, and then it became a little easier. But we became, I mean, he's like my Asian brother. And uh, so he he went back that first year, and, and he won the championship, and, and then he said, okay, you need to come over and run training camp for me and get the season started and then come back for the playoffs. And, and so I would, when I could, I would do that. I would I would go over and, and uh, anyway, we ended up winning seven championships, seven CBA championships. And I went over one Sunday and coached the team in the Chinese Olympics. The Chinese have their own Olympics the summer after the real Olympics. And it's to the Chinese, for the most part, it's a bigger event than the World Olympics. But we won. You know, they they um, they had never they had never won a gold medal in their province, uh, but we did it. And uh, I mean, I, I mean, we're still great friends. I mean, I'm not going back over there now after everything that's happened. But uh, but Bruce. You know, I, I had 15 or 16 summers in my coaching career. I had big man perimeter camps, and I had one up there at the academy. And that's where Cameron and, uh, and those guys came. Uh, and I, I enjoyed those camps so much because guys that would come to those camps came for a reason. They wanted to get better. And so it was so much fun. And we, uh, along with Working hard, you know, we had a ton. We had a ton of fun. And, uh, but Bruce, Bruce is gone. He was a good friend. Um, I miss him, and I think I'll always miss him. Uh, but he opened the door for me to do, a, you know, to, to to go to China a lot, and to go. I mean, I was I've been all over China. I mean, I've just been all over the place. And uh, 
spent a year in Japan coaching in that league, and um, that's the year of the uh, the tsunami, the, the earthquake, the 9.5 earthquake. We were in Tokyo when that happened, uh, and that was scary. But we had a good team over there, and then I I spent a summer coaching the Taiwanese national team in the uh, in the Asian Championship. So Bruce opened a lot of doors, and uh, I, I will be forever thankful for him. So Coach Hill. Your, who would you say your top three role models in coaching are? And then kind of give us a, some history on recruiting back in the 70s and 80s. Well, my heroes, uh, Bill Fitch. Bill Fitch recruited me to Bowling Green, and um, he recruited a really good team. Uh, and that was back in the day where the freshmen had to play freshman basketball. So, um, you know, we – we had a terrific team. The varsity went to the NCAA tournament, and then he left and went to Minnesota. But the lasting impression that he had on me, and really all of us, um, he's somebody special that I, I will always appreciate. And then my high school coach, a guy by the name of George Klein that you've never heard of, he lives up here in, in Texas, and I drove, he and I drove, I don't know, an hour to get to this remote Mexican restaurant so we could. I could see him uh, and, and talk to him and, a, and get caught up. But uh, the Bill Fitch and, and uh, George Klein, and then there's another guy named Jim Lessick who was Bill Fitch's assistant, and he was our freshman coach at, uh, at Bowling Green. And, and uh, I mean, I, those three guys are, had a huge impact on me. You know, I, I had the chance to work with Larry Brown in Kansas, and Larry, Larry was a, 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 probably the best coach I ever worked for. I certainly learned a lot from him. Um, the coaches, you know, the coaches were my heroes. Coaches were, I mean, I had a couple, a couple other people that weren't coaches, but for the most part, those three guys I mentioned first were the ones that had really big impact on me. And, uh, I'll never, I'll never forget him, and I always appreciate him. But coaching in the '70s was so it was different because you know we didn't have any. Uh, there was no calendars. I mean, there was no dead periods. There was no active periods. There was just people that wanted to go work. Uh, you could go as many times as you wanted to, and the guys that worked the hardest usually got the players. And uh, you know we. We put together a terrific team at Bowling Green when I first started coaching, and we actually uh, we played in the. I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was a commissioner's conference tournament. It was the third postseason tournament with the NIT and the NCAA, and it was in. We played in Louisville at Freedom Hall. We played Tennessee in the first game, and you know I don't have to tell you how much. Kentucky fans hated Ray Mears. Um, but they had Bernard and Ernie on their team. And we had a we had a terrific team. We had this little guard named Jeff Montgomery and Cornelius Cash who played with the Milwaukee Bucks and Skip Howard. We had the tallest team in America. Um, Mark Cartwright was a transfer from Maryland, seven footer. Uh, we were really we were, our best players were our guards and our centers. You know, our small forwards were, uh, weren't as good, but, but anyway, we beat Tennessee. Montgomery had like, I don't know, 35, 38 points. 
and he became a cult hero for like two days there in Louisville. And then we played Drake, and Drake beat us, and then Drake beat Arizona in the finals. But um, that was, and then I left Bowling Green and went to the University of Pittsburgh uh, and spent two years there. And Tim Gergerich was the head coach at the University of Pittsburgh, and Fran Webster was the other assistant. He was 60-some years old at the time, so I had to do all the recruiting. And uh, that was crazy because, thank God, you could just, you know, I, I just lived in, a, in Monte Carlo for two years, and we put together two great recruiting classes, and, uh, and then I went to Kansas. Uh, so it was just different then. I mean, you know, you could, if you wanted to work, you could sign players. If you were lazy, you'd get fired. Um, but it was, it, it was, it was a great time for me, uh, and I'm glad the way the rules were because the scenarios that I was in, uh, it would have been really difficult because I wouldn't have been able to do it by myself if the rules had been different. Do you think that that model would still work today? No, not now. I mean, this whole one and done thing and all the stuff, everything that, that means. I, I, you know, I don't want to get into pointing fingers about who's shooting and who's buying, but. You know, you don't get a one-and-done kid free. You just don't get them for free. <laughs> you just don't. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, you know, we're too far gone like that now. I mean, uh, I, I wish they would. I wish this one-and-done thing had never happened, uh, but it did. And you know, I, I still can't believe some of the presidents that allow it to happen. I just don't think it makes the academic communities look look very good, um, but, you know, they're making money in the NCAA tournament, and uh, I guess they, they thought originally that this would be beneficial to that, which I don't, I don't think it has been, but I don't know how many championships have been won by a team full of freshmen, um, but um, I don't think it would ever work today, and I, but I think they have to get a hold of this and somehow get it settled down, get it you know, if you're going to go to college, stay for three years. You know, stay, stay and get an education. I mean, you know, some of these guys that, that stayed for one year, and you know, you hear them, you hear them in an interview, and you can kind of tell that they didn't go to college. Um, but there's some that did good. You know, a Booker, I love Booker. Booker Booker's awesome. He really is a good kid. He's a good player. That kid can shoot. You know, not, when, when we were out there, we had, I don't know, we played five games in seven days or something, and we got back to Phoenix, and we were going to bring some of the guys in, but we wanted the guys that were playing heavy minutes to take the day off. So, you know, he was one of the guys. But, you know, we are out there on the practice court, and we turn around, there he is, at the other end of the court. So I gave him two three-point shooting drills. I said, if you, there's no way you can win either one of these drills. And that's all you got to do is book this challenge and whatever. But so he did the first one and he won. And then he did the second one and he lost. And then, <laughs> then he tried to do it again. And we're talking about shooting threes, rapid fire for five minutes and getting stuck on the field. So your shoulders get tired in about two minutes. And he did it three times. And he, he did it the third time. And he still didn't win it. Uh, and then he finally said, okay, I'll, I'll be back tomorrow. But you couldn't keep him out of the gym. 
I mean, he he just absolutely loved it. His, his dad was out there with him, which I thought was great to keep a foot in his butt. And, uh, and he's doing good. You know, he, he's one of the guys that that, uh, that you got to tip your hat to. He, you know, he's, he's made the transition, and, and uh, he, I don't know, he got the max contract, I think, so he, he, got, his, he got paid. And, uh, and I'm rooting for him. So, Coach, a lot of a lot of young boys want to grow up to be like their father, and you have three sons that have followed in your footsteps in terms of being a coach. And obviously, I'm a little biased to Cameron because I've spent a few years with him, and I've seen his basketball mind and what he, you know, the impact that he has on young individuals. But can you just talk about Cameron, Chris, and Casey a little bit in terms of? maybe why they followed in your footsteps and then maybe some things that you have learned from them over the years. You know, I didn't encourage, I didn't encourage them or tell them that they should coach. I mean, I, I, I really didn't. I mean, they just kind of naturally did it. In Cameron's case, you know, I lost my mind and took the fielding job and I had a, I had an opening and, you know, I said this earlier, but, um, you know, we'd be in staff meetings and, you know, I, I'm his dad and everything, but he was never afraid to speak up and, and, and he always had good, good suggestions and good ideas, and and uh, he worked really hard because he appreciated the opportunity. So it was, he gave him a chance to get his feet wet. But he played overseas a little bit, so he understood that part of it. And uh, he loved being at Kentucky. I mean, he he just loved being there. He loved all the people he worked with, loved players. You know, and Teddy, you know, Teddy let him do a lot of the teaching in the summertime. He's a terrific teacher. I'll play him more, but, you know, Cameron's a terrific teacher, and he's uh, he's enjoying great success at Trinity, and uh, I couldn't be more proud of him. Chris, Chris, is, uh, Chris has a great job. I mean, Chris is the head basketball coach at Dallas Jesuit High School and the assistant athletic director. And it's an all-boys school, and he's got, he's got good players all the time. Now, he can't recruit, um, but he get good players, and sometimes he'll be a great player. Or maybe a couple times he'll get a great player. But, yeah, he became the women's coach at Jesuit pretty quick. Um, and he's a staple at that school. And I couldn't be more proud of him either. I mean, he's uh, – and I think he'll stay there forever. You know, I don't, I don't think that he's uh, hungry to – Making millions of dollars or be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, he, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame at Jesuit. Um, but he just is, a, he's a basketball coach. He's honest. He's a terrific teacher. He's firm. He's fair. He's organized. And uh, the players love him. And, uh, you know, we had a good talk the other day. And I, and I, I insinuated what a great job he has. And, and his answer was, you know, I, this might be the only one I ever had. And so he, he's thinking about just staying right there. But if he does, couldn't be more proud of him. And then Casey, young one, he's uh, his mom didn't want him to coach, to be honest with you. And so the first two or three years out of college, uh, he tried other things, and uh, he just wasn't happy. And this, this is kind of cool, but I was training players I was back out in San Francisco training three draft guys. And I get a phone call from a guy in L.A. who uh, was a big hedge fund guy. And he had played professional football in Japan. 
and he bought a basketball team in Japan, and he wanted me to be the coach. So I flew down to L.A., and I met with him once again, and at the end of the, the, end of the dinner, I said, well, I'd be glad to do this, but i, I got to take my youngest son as my assistant coach. I know they didn't have any problem with that, so Pam and I and, and Casey and uh, Lizzie, you know, we, we, we end up going to Tokyo, and he was just like Cameron. I mean, he was like uh, an anchorist. I mean, you know, he was not afraid to speak up. And I, I designed practices so it would benefit him. I'd give him a team to coach most days. And uh, and he he loved it. I mean, he loved it. He loved what he was doing and you know, certainly more than what he was doing before. And, um, and we had a terrific team. But that's, I, I said earlier, that's when the earthquake hit. And... Uh, you know, we were on the 26th floor the afternoon it hit. And we had to walk you know, down the stairwell and, you know, got down there. And then once we got to the, once we got downstairs, the seven-point dude hit. Long story short, five days later, we were all heading home because uh, Fukushima, you know, the, the gas was leaking and, you know, things were not good. So our owners, our owners got us out of there. Uh, but... You know, he he got a really good foundation. We were there for nine months, and uh, he loved it. And when I got back, uh, he got an opportunity to go with a D-League team uh, with Golden State and did that for two or three years and became the head coach of the D-League team uh, in Santa Cruz and got to the finals one year running championship in the next, and then went with, the, uh, went with Doc in L.A. with the Clippers for a couple of years, and now he's up on the bench in, uh, in New Orleans. Uh, so he's he's made his way kind of quickly up the ladder in the NBA, and uh, he's doing good. And the coolest thing about my sons, the three of us talk every day. I mean, there's there's a very few days go by that I don't that I don't call them and they don't call me. About, not always about basketball, but just checking in, just want to hear your voice. So I'm. I'm really fortunate, but I grossly overachieve in my marriage, and I have a, a wonderful wife, and she had a lot to do with everything I'm talking about, obviously, so I'm a, I'm a very blessed guy. So I'll say this, Coach. Obviously, I said I was biased to camera because I got to spend some time with him, but I'll say this. like He was a huge asset to me as a player that did not get a great opportunity to play a lot of minutes. And he was in my ear, just supportive and encouraging and just so charismatic. And he really helped me as a player. And then my one year as a graduate assistant to see him in the meeting room with all the coaches. And even though he did not have that on court title, uh, Tubby listened to him probably more than any other assistant in the room. Uh, and I think that was a testament to his knowledge and, and him listening to you and growing up around you as well. So uh, Cameron's a, a, a big a big part of my life, and I appreciate uh, Cameron Hill and everything he's done for me. Well, that's nice. He's, he's a special guy. You know what You know what he can do? He, he can write. I mean, he'll, when, when his two sons go to bed and his wife goes to bed, he sits up a lot of nights and he, he writes his thoughts. And a lot of times she'll share those with us, and it's man, is it interesting? I mean, he's uh, he's got a talent when it comes to uh, to just sitting down and writing. I mean, I've encouraged him to to definitely write a book one day because I think uh, I think it'll be 
I think it would be great for young coaches uh, to do. Well, Coach, I know you, we usually ask about legacy and how coaches want to be remembered. But uh, you're retired now, partially retired, you say, partially not on the golf course. And I know I know you've got four former players that are still involved or have been head coaches um, in Earl Watson, Avery Johnson, Randy Whitman, and Monty Williams. And I know that that um, a lot of their success is because of you. And, you know, Avery Johnson sitting next to you on the airplane, you know, going through uh, full game breakdowns and you were an assistant for Earl Watson and, you know, all the, all the things that Randy Whitman learned from you in Indiana and then the success that Monty Williams is having. But we certainly appreciate you coming on the podcast and chatting it up with us. And it's, it's not every day that we, we can say that we've had a former NBA head coach on, on our podcast. So we, we certainly appreciate it and hopefully we'll, we'll welcome you back on uh, after uh, more championships have been won by your son. Well, I look forward to it, and I appreciate it. I've, I've certainly enjoyed it. Thanks for your time, Coach. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for your time, time, Coach. Okay, thank you, guys. Thanks, Coach. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Whistle Stop Podcast, brought to you by Jason Stonebreaker at Campbell Chevrolet on Scottsville Road in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Call or text Jason at 270-996-8365 to schedule your summer test drive. Check out the hashtags, buy from Stoney, Stony Cells and BG Cars for the latest new and used car information. Also check out CampbellChevrolet.com. Find us wherever you get your podcast and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WhistleStopPod.